0: listening to The Dealmaker's Edge with A.Y. Strauss, diving deep into stories behind commercial real estate leaders, Ina, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Before we get going, just want to say about Ina, her bio is very extensive, but just briefly, she's a partner in the Client Solutions Group, Brid Investment Group, which is a globally trusted real estate investment firm with over $28 billion in assets under management, over 1600 employees. She's a prominent voice in the industry regarding a private sector solution to the US affordable housing crisis. And she most recently helped Bridge Investment Group win ESG Private Equity Impact Fund of the Year in 2021. And she's chairwoman of Bridge Gives, Bridge's charitable giving arm. So, Ina, you've had a remarkable career. We're excited to have you on and love to kick it off by sharing your background briefly, if you wouldn't mind giving people an overview of where you're from, where you went to school and how you got started in commercial real estate.
1: Thank you, Aaron, very much for having me and and thrilled to be here on this podcast. I've spent my whole career in finance and specifically on the relationship building side within finance, always serving clients and building relationships with a wide swath of investors, which I continue to do today as my principal day job at Bridge Investment Group. I was born in Russia, so I'm a first-generation immigrant, grew up in California, moved to the San Francisco Bay Area as, as a child, and then went to the East Coast for College. I went to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, studied finance and legal studies, and then decided to move straight out of college to London where I joined Lehman Brothers. I was in a startup emerging markets team at that time. And I've always been lucky to be thrown into the deep end, so to speak. From the very beginning of my career, I've always been in very entrepreneurial roles where I was in that sweet spot where I could both help build a business as well as rely on my skills to build and monetize client relationships. And that was no different at Lehman Brothers. I was really, you know, I was young. I had no idea what I was doing or what I was talking about, but I had to go and bring in clients and uh, monetize those clients. As a result, I had quite a bit of visibility when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt in 2008. I was there, but because I was a pretty active participant within this, this new, New high profile startup team, I managed to keep my job through that process, which was good because I was on a, a work permit and I otherwise would have had to leave London, which I really didn't want to do, but managed to keep my job. I then stayed with Nomura who took over Lehman Brothers operations or part of them in Europe and Asia. And I joined uh, the high yield credit team because you could tell that at the new Nomura, uh, emerging markets were not quite their principal focus, whereas fixed income was. And I had the opportunity to go launch a new team there focused on a high yield and distressed credit. Exciting time to be in the industry because I was working with a number of hedge fund clients during the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis as they were trading credit default swaps on Portugal or or Ireland or Greece going bankrupt. Really interesting time to be in the markets and on the trading side. But you could also tell that that business, institutional sales and trading, was structurally and fundamentally changed. Post the GFC, and I decided that it was a good time for me personally to revisit to see what else was out there. And I decided to apply to business school. So I left London after after five years. I was a vice president at the time and went to Harvard Business School. Got my MBA. A lot of fun, of course. Business school is always a lot of fun. Met some great people. And from there, joined Goldman Sachs in the investment management division, where I once again was in an entrepreneurial role focused on both family office, high net worth, and institutional investors. And while I was at Goldman, I actually met the chairman of uh, Bridge Investment Group, who I I developed a relationship with while while at Goldman. And one day he called me up and he said, what do you think about leaving Goldman and coming to work for me at Bridge? We're a fast-growing real estate investment firm if you manage to bring me on as a client you can probably do that with others at bridge and we need someone with your hustle so to speak at the time it was kind of a difficult decision you know leaving a brand name firm for a less at the time a less well-known firm and of course now bridge is is a prolific. A real estate manager with, with, a, with a terrific brand. We just went public this past summer on the New York Stock Exchange. But at the time, it was kind of a risk and it was absolutely the best decision I've ever made. Extremely fulfilling a career at Bridge. I've been there now for six years and have never had more, more fun building a business, contributing to the strategy, working with a fantastic team uh, and getting to do what what I love every day. It doesn't feel like work.
0: That's great. And it seems like you're actively involved on many levels at the firm. You're in senior management, dealing with the investors, winning awards. And I know you're super passionate about workforce housing and the affordable housing crisis, which is real. Do you want to talk broadly about that market and your passion for it and some of the things you've done in that space?
1: Workforce and affordable housing is a passion of of Bridge Investment Group, dating back for, for 30 years now, since we were founded in the early 90s we think that we were among the first investment managers if not the first to recognize that when you integrate social and community programming on site for residents when you can do more for residents that just provide four walls and a roof they don't want to leave your property they're getting a lot more intrinsic value uh, than just affordable rent and so we've been focused on delivering value for residents, to building vibrant, thriving communities, to the advancement of social and economic mobility really early on. We always talk about how we've been at the forefront of revitalizing communities. In 2017, after a long time uh, history and track record of preserving and rehabilitating both workforce and affordable housing, as well as value-add multifamily, we saw what was happening in the affordable housing crisis, how it was getting worse each year, and how especially the government subsidized solutions out there, low-income housing tax credits, Section 8, were really imperfect. Returns were shrinking. There was less and less supply. And unfortunately, they only addressed a tiny fragment of the need for high quality, affordable housing. You have to earn less than 50% of area median income, typically more like 30 to 40 to qualify. And even if you do qualify, only one in five renters can actually tap into it. And meanwhile, in the industry, we were building only as an industry, Class A luxury housing. And so this created a disconnect. And a big void in the market for a large, underserved segment of the renter base. Almost two-thirds of U.S. renters today earn less than 80% of area median income. This represents teachers, policemen, firemen, public city workers, healthcare workers. And their needs were not being met at the core of the U.S. workforce. Not met by government subsidized housing not met by what's being built in the market. And we saw this and we said, you know, we can really make a difference on a level that doesn't otherwise exist in the marketplace because we are a nationwide operator, because of our nonprofit partnerships in the advancement of social and economic mobility, because of a mandate where we can create a strategy that will specifically focus on this, that no one else in the market is doing this. And it's been a tremendous success. We now operate the leading private sector solution to the affordable housing crisis in the U.S. We've won a tremendous amount of industry recognition just a couple of weeks ago, we actually won Pension Bridge ESG Private Fund of the Year. We won the ESG Fund of the Year in the ESG Awards in 2021, Social Fund of the Year in the Environmental Finance and Ability Awards. We won recognition from UN Principles of Responsible Investment for real-world impact. And the reason that we are winning all of these awards, in our view, is because we've been able to show that you can do well by doing good, that the two are not mutually exclusive, but rather that when you provide more than four walls in a roof to residents, you can, at the same time, generally. Generate commercial success, as well as true community revitalization, that the two reinforce one another. And we've done it in a a way that is differentiated. We have a strict mandate where the majority of our units at every property have to be rented to the missing middle, earning less than 80% of AMI. We put our money where our mouth is. We have alignment. We take 25 basis points of our management fee, which is about $40 million over the lives of our workforce affordable housing vehicles to fund on-site dedicated social community programming at every single property. And we report on our impact in a way that we think continues to lead the industry by using the Global Impact Investing Network's IRIS framework. And so as an investor, you can see how you're not just generating strong cash flows and attractive returns, but you're also truly revitalizing communities. And you can see that on a granular asset level basis. And that's really powerful.
0: That's amazing. And Obviously, workforce is a major part of what you're doing, but I mean, you're in the market in so many different ways. And we talked last time about where we are. You know, you've been through a couple cycles now. You've seen a lot of different things. What about the fundamentals you're seeing today? I mean, there's there's so much so much capital moving. There's so much at work. There's so much on your plate and the, and the firm's plate in general. Where do you see the sort of the market moving next one or two, three years? Are you just going to sort of continue going down the road you're on? Are you thinking about things differently perhaps today than you were six to 12 months ago Or the fundamentals are strong and just keep on tracking?
1: I think it's extremely exciting time to be in the commercial real estate market. And I also think the flows of capital are continuing to be supportive of the real estate market. There are nonstop studies and and reports out there about how the pension plans and other large institutional investors are struggling to meet their obligations to beneficiaries and target returns because they need to pay out quite a lot of money and returns are compressing in many asset classes uh, around the globe. And real estate provides an opportunity to generate strong current yield, capital appreciation. It remains a place of strong relative value and also a place where you can generate above market returns, especially in our view, if you are partnering with an operator, because we've always talked about how there's a difference between being a capital allocator, where you have to rely on third parties, where you are not connected to your assets, where you have to oftentimes pay portfolio level premiums and being an owner operator, where you have resident connectivity, where you can be nimble during good times and particularly during bad times like COVID-19 or, or the GFC, where you can demonstrate operational efficiency that, and cut and costs. Uh, and so from our perspective, in this efficient market, being an operator continues to have an edge, uh, probably an even greater edge than it did previously. And we're seeing that particularly play out in some of the more niche sectors that have become a favor of late whether it's logistics or you know data centers or warehouses where cap rates have continued to compress and where your ability to drive operational alpha and to create extra efficiencies out of the management of those assets will make all the difference in the world in terms of generating returns versus not generally where we are seeing Interest right now and long term tailwinds are demographic driven sectors where you can create operational alpha. That includes workforce and affordable housing, which we just spoke about. It includes generally essential housing, class B, multifamily, which is in short supply, senior housing which has been battered by the COVID-19 pandemic because of illness, because of the inability to have movements, but yet as a result represents some attractive entry points uh, and some distressed opportunities at this point. It includes certain pockets of office where there are the ability to buy at a discount from undercapitalized uh, owners and, and where you can drive value and monetization and take advantage of the inflow of human capital into certain pockets around the US. It includes certain types of logistics properties as well. I'll just say that in general, real estate right now is growing in many investor portfolios in terms of the allocation. Because if there is going to be an inflationary environment, real estate often does quite well. It's considered to be an inflation hedge. If you're a taxable investor, it's of course tax efficient. If you're an institutional investor, then you have some inflation protection and also the continued ability to drive returns when many other asset classes are compressing. So a lot of different opportunities out there.
0: It's great. And you mentioned your edge in there, where on institutional level, you obviously have to seek those alpha returns, as you're suggesting, and get the edge for your your investors, grow the business. But I'm curious on a personal level, I mean, you've you've had a remarkable career, you're doing so much, you're managing a broad team, you're interfacing with so many different investors. I mean, how are you personally driving day to day without burning out? And what are the things you're telling yourself as you're managing day to day? I mean, your personal edge, I'm kind of curious to hear about too, how you, how you find balance with everything you have going on.
1: No one is perfect at managing all of the stress that comes with a demanding job. What makes it all doable is loving what you do. I do spend a lot of hours on bridge and on bringing in clients, on thinking strategically about how we continue to grow our business, on interfacing with our in- investors or, or with colleagues. But I love that and it energizes me and it gives me enough energy then to do the other things in my life that I that I also want to do whether that's you know spending time with with my son or 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 with my husband. I think it's important to be organized and I start every day with a very long to-do list of all the things that I have to accomplish in, in that particular day and of course Sometimes you get derailed, but it's a helpful framework that includes usually both short term, you know, what needs to be done that day, as well as more longer term strategic vision items that I get to if I have time so that I'm reminded you know, not to forget about uh, important uh, longer duration items as well. I think the general maybe edge that I have is by nature, I, I love spending time with people. I am an extrovert and I'm in the right seat. I think that when you are in that so-called sweet spot, which is the intersection of what you're good at doing and what you love doing, you're just naturally going to be more successful. I have spent an, enough time in my career to recognize what my strengths are and also what my weaknesses are. You can hire around weaknesses, you can build on those weaknesses, uh, you can have a great team to help support the weaknesses, and then you can capitalize on on your strengths. And I really try to do that. I do think that I am good at figuring out what investors need and want, at building relationships with those investors, at negotiating deals, at, at, at bringing in capital and telling the bridge story but I also love doing those things. And that makes it all easy. And also when you like the people that you're doing it with, it makes your job much easier as well. It's all about hustle <laughs> yep. and it's all about being in the right seat.
0: And and um, all that hard work pays off incrementally over time and sometimes exponentially. On the adversity side, anything you've seen in the last several years that, that was sort of a setback for you that you learned from?
1: I think that it's it, there's always some adversity when you start in a new position. For me, you know, joining bridge, I was new to the real estate sector. I had spent my whole career in finance and of course new real estate somewhat, but I didn't know real estate that well. And that's not quite adversity. It's more like just being in a position where you, you have to learn something very quickly. You ha- you're you expected to perform, especially at the time we were quite a lean entrepreneurial, almost startup-like organization. And so there was no time to sit on my laurels and, and learn the industry. I just had to learn by doing and by getting thrown into that, that deep end. What I learned is that, first of all, you can learn anything. If you are if capable person who is not afraid of challenge and who is not afraid to you know be humble and to recognize what you don't know you can really learn anything with practice and with being surrounded by smart educated people that you can learn from and so i was actually surprised at how quickly i managed to grasp the industry who the key players are how it all works how one drives value in real estate you know what the models look like what the numbers look like, what the terms mean. Now, I think that I consider myself an expert in real estate. And I think that it it just shows that you should not be afraid to take on new challenges. And just because you may not know something or you're new to a role or you're new to an industry doesn't mean that you can't be wildly successful at it. Again, provided that you're in the right seat and you're surrounded by the right people.
0: Yeah. And I think Uh, also having having the drive you have doesn't hurt either. I think a lot of people understate how hard they work and what they put in. And I know you put in a lot and that, uh, that also helped propel you dramatically too. Which is Drive great. helps. Drive helps. <laughs> Drive helps. is a
1: prerequisite.
0: Ambition helps, hard work helps, no substitute yes. for that. Yes, um, no substitute. Let me ask you this, somebody who's graduating school, they managed to squeeze into your calendar I meet you for coffee and they're, they're looking for advice. How do I have a successful career on institutional commercial real estate? How do I get started? What would you tell me from a macro perspective? Guide me I'm just trying to get started.
1: The most important thing is to be in a fast-growing firm. I think Cheryl Sandbrook said this. You want to join a fast-growing firm in a fast-growing industry. The good news about real estate is it continues to grow in all number of, of ways uh, from a macro perspective. Perspective and from an allocation perspective. So you're good there. Good choice of industry, <laughs> firstly. But the growing firm is really important because there are a lot of real estate firms out there, and some of them have maybe too specialized of a focus. And different parts of real estate are in flavor one year and out of favor the next because, you know, mackerel tailwinds shift. And so I think you really want to look for a firm that has an edge ideally with operating capabilities, because again, as we spoke about, I think that the owner operator approach is superior in real estate. I think it does drive incremental alpha, but you also want to be in a firm where you see growth and that could be geographic growth, or it could be sector growth where you've seen a trajectory of them being able to raise incremental capital over time. One of the great things about bridge is that, we've been one of the fastest growing if not the fastest real estate private equity firms globally over the past you know number of of years since we started our our discretionary fund business and that makes it really fun and it creates opportunity and so you want to be in a place where you have that trajectory and then also great people where you can wear multiple hats when i look at my career the best gift that i was given Is having an entrepreneurial seat on an entrepreneurial team where I got to do many different things and not just not just deliver coffee (laughs) to to my boss.
0: And I think there's a lot of major real estate firms that they're major because they bought the assets a long time ago and they may buy an asset once every couple of years and you're not going to learn much. Maybe property management, asset management, but you're right. Go for the growth and be around great people. One other question: You won. You've won the, the firm's won and you've helped the firm win all these different awards. The ESG Private Equity Impact Fund of the Year Award. Can you talk about that? What led into winning that award? How does one win such award? ESG is a hot topic. Maybe explain a little bit about that topic generally for those who may not understand it. ESG
1: is exploding and you just can't ignore it. And it's exploding at every single part of of an organization as it relates to investing, as it relates to management and corporate governance, as it relates to how different employers are giving back to their communities. Every day right now, we are getting inquiries from investors about our ESG practices and about how we are prioritizing, whether it's diversity, equity, and inclusion, or climate change into our investment process. And so in general, this has been a huge Topic of interest and growth in the industry for a long time, and it's not going away. Uh, and so, at Bridge, we have we have a dedicated uh, head of ESG and ESG committee on, on, on which I sit. I actually helped to launch that committee. I think it was technically it was my idea, but it sounds silly to say because it was so obvious at the time that we <laughs> that we had to do it. Yeah. That really, I, it was really the idea of of our investors and, and and the world, and it was perfect timing when we did it. In terms of taking that one step further. One of the issues with ESG is reporting and transparency and figuring out how you can create structure around something that sometimes is more nebulous. And so the reason that we keep winning these ESG awards is because that's exactly what we have done in our workforce Affordable housing strategy, which is, it's an impact strategy, but it's also uh, a strategy that delivers, you know, above market returns and cash flows. We have taken a very hard look at measurement and tried to provide a level of actionable intelligence that doesn't otherwise exist in the real estate industry really looking at not just outputs like you know percentage of affordability or per, uh, or number of of residents that are uh, provided with after school academic programming but longer term outcomes and impacts how does that then inform college enrollment relative to that income bracket how do credit scores change over time and how does that change the community A landscape many other any other features. And that's, I think the missing element right now in the industry is making it more streamlined. A number of organizations have tried. And so frankly, I think that's a great opportunity for someone new, you know, coming out of school to yeah. try to streamline ESG.
0: It's amazing. And as you said earlier in the call, you could do well by doing good too. It's not just about building super high-end luxury for someone who can afford max rent. If you can change the location, add the value, give back and distribute income and returns your investors. It's a wonderful place to be in life. I'll wrap by saying, Ina, it's been absolutely amazing to have you on this podcast. Thank you so, so much for sharing. I think everyone can learn a lot from your career and what you've done and what you continue to do.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking with you and and very much appreciate being part of this podcast.
0: Thank you for joining The Dealmaker's Edge. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a five-star rating so more people can follow the conversation.